And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host, Matt Watson. Today, I'm joined by Steve DeMock, who is the CTO of WebBuy, who's done some really cool stuff with helping people, consumers, buy cars online. He also has a new company he's the founder of called Pauldron. We'll talk about that today, too. In general today, I think we're going to talk about automotive technology. There's a lot of cool software in automotive, and I worked in automotive for a long time and still kind of work around automotive, so it should be a fun conversation. Before we get started, I do remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale. My company has hundreds of software developers that have worked for over 100 other companies in the past and the present, building all kinds of cool software, front-end, back-end, mobile, QA, all these different things. If you need development talent, you can check us out at fullscale.io. Steve, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. You know, one of my first questions for you is, what is it like working in tech in Montana? <laughs> working in tech in Montana is interesting. Um, yeah, generally when you think of Montana, you don't think of technology, but um, I, I think we're we're trying to flip the script on that a little bit. Uh, really, um, when I got into the industry uh, back in 2008, uh, not a lot was going on from a computer uh, science standpoint. And um, over the past couple of years, we've seen lots of companies in the space kind of arise in Montana. You might have heard of uh, Onyx is one of the larger uh, companies in the software space that has been growing here in Montana. Um, additionally, we've had uh, a series of different angel investment companies uh, that have come into the space surrounding tech uh, out in Montana as well here. Um, and we've also seen growth in the co computer science in the schools. Um, one of my uh, big things coming out of Rocky Mountain College here in uh, here in Billings, Montana, was uh, the computer science program over there. And we've actually done a ton of hiring and stuff out of that program as well to try to, again, encourage um, the growth of computer science in the area. Of course, Bozeman and Missoula have, are, are kind of the epicenters of that right now, uh, whereas Billings is a little bit more blue collar. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been exciting to watch uh, developments kind of growing in the space. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people realize how little you know, college grads we get on a yearly basis from the colleges. I was blown away by uh, one day when I got the statistic for the state of Kansas, because I'm in Kansas, mm -hmm. kind of similar, like people think of like cornfields and Dorothy and Superman coming from Smallville. But there was only something like 200 graduates a year mm -hmm. between like KU and K-State and Fort Hayes, Wichita, like all of these schools. That's it. 200 yeah. a year. That was the time. That was it. So it's 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 there's just not enough software developers, right? And um, I'm gonna guess the population of Kansas is a little bigger than Montana too. It, I, don't, I don't know for sure. It but. is. It is. Yeah. No. We from a you know an internship perspective, um, you know, we generally I think I would see five to ten candidates come out every year, and you know, generally we we try to bring in at least one or two of them um, to help again facilitate those programs, but. 
it's it's not it's not huge pickings for sure, but it's been really good for us because I've been able to bring people in from a junior uh, standpoint, and then uh, typically they'll stay with us long enough to get into sort of that mil- middle developer territory, um, and uh, either stay with us into senior development territory, um, or alternatively, you know, we kind of uh, set set them up in a good position to be able to move them to those senior roles at other companies. Yeah. Well, tell us a little more about uh, WebBuy. You've been the CTO at WebBuy for for many, many years, and you guys have been doing some really cool stuff with trying to perfect that journey of helping consumers buy a car Mm because let's be honest, this is a safe space, right? None (laughs) of us want to go to a dealership and sit in the damn finance department for an hour. That is very true. Not one of us. I think this is a safe space to say that, right? So part of the goal of WebBuy was trying to solve that problem, right? Let let a consumer buy a car from home or or mostly complete more of the transaction online, right? So mm-hmm. tell, tell, tell us a little bit about how freaking hard that actually is to make work. A lot harder than we thought going into it, for sure. I mean, our goal at WebBuy, so we're, we're, in complete transparency, dealer funded. Um, and uh, our original founder, Steve Zabala, um, you know, he owns a dealership group here in Billings. Um, and, uh, you know, really one of the goals there was to sort of create this more, like you say, sort of Amazon-esque sort of experience to the car process where you could sit at your house, middle of the night, go through the entire transactional process. And then by the time you get to the end of the process, you've got a vehicle that's either going to be dropped off and delivered to you, or you can spend a minimal amount of time uh, at the dealership. Um, Yeah, in theory, that sounds really easy, but in actual practicality, it's very difficult, especially if you're not building it for one dealership. Every dealership out there has got a different way of doing business. And so one of our challenges over the past 10 years that I've been working on this project has been um, trying to meet the dealerships where they are. And so what that means is that, of course, you have to build a process that's extraordinarily flexible so that you can meet them there, um, while at the same time promoting sort of the the transparency that we want to give the customers in the uh, trust that we want to be able to build with customers going through that process. So, yeah, it's been an enormous challenge. I mean, um, Basically, our system consists of a series of different modules, and each one of those modules has to reflect a very specific part of that buying process, and it has to be totally configurable to the way that the dealership does business. Wait a second. You're saying building software is hard? Go figure, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like you need to consider every eventuality. Well, it seems easy enough. Like, I want to buy this car. I get a price. I fill out. I sign one thing, and I buy it, right? Sounds simple, but it's not that simple. Like, there's like 10 or 20 different steps of yeah. pulling your credit. What is your trade worth appraising your trade, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out what is your payoff to pay off your current car, getting you approved for new financing. What are the accessories you want to buy for the car? Do you want to buy this warranty? Do you want to buy gap? Like, do you want the car delivered? Like there, there's like a whole bunch of crap. Like there's a lot of crap. And every one of those requires an integration and custom logic. And like you said, they're different modules. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things in all that is like the math and the calculations to just like calculate the, the the payments and the finance options. Like I built one of those systems are super complicated Yes, because you have these crazy problems with like, uh, what is the tax in Billings, Montana versus what is the tax in Kansas City, Kansas? It, like in the ta- even just the taxes are crazy. 
Oh, and yeah. then it's more complicated because it's like go purchase a vehicle out of state. <laughs> yeah. And then what do they tax? Right. Because like in Kansas, they're like, well, we tax the car, mm-hmm. but you can't. But what if I trade in a car? But yep. then a different state, you know, the rules of that are totally different. And then leases are totally different. Like all of this shit is complicated, like really, really complicated. Nobody understands. Yeah. And I understand it because I built that system for car dealers for the customer that walked in the door. Right. Mm-hmm. So the customer that walked in the door, that's like part of that's like what I built for Vin Solutions, right? Yep. And so what was so cool, I sat down with with the other Steve that you mentioned. Um, and he did a demo for me of your guys' product a couple weeks ago. And I was actually really blown away by how great of a user interface you guys had built to try and make this easy for the consumer. But there's just a lot of steps. There's just a lot of things to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um and again, heaven forbid somebody goes through and needs like a non-standard process. Um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with talking about partners. Like we've got some fantastic partnerships in the space, but we've we've historically done a lot of this uh, legwork ourselves. Like when we first started, we did all the pricing calculation work all by ourselves. Um, we built a flexible system in the back end where on, a, on an account by account basis, you could adjust all of the logic that would go into the pricing that would, that would, uh, be displayed to the customer. Um, the problem is that a lot of the time, even the dealership doesn't know how that pricing is supposed to work. Um, no, they don't know. If you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of dealerships. Things change all the time. The laws change in different states. Things change on the dealership level. A, a new GM comes in and wants to shake things up. Uh, the new general manager. That happens all the time. Um, and so creating a f- system that was flexible enough to handle that um, was, was incredibly difficult. Um, you know, we've learned a lot along the way. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, we've gotten to the point now where between our partnerships and the um, the logic that we've built in from the beginning and been honing for the last 10 years has gotten really good. And, you know, we're now at the point where we can make estimated prices for the customer within a few cents of what the dealership would have offered anyway. So uh, we're fortunate to have gotten to that point because a lot of digital retailing products could not get to that point. Um, so, yeah. So, so you bring you. So that is awesome, right? Like, so when you st- when you start out as an entrepreneur or as a founder, you're like, okay, I want to solve this problem, and I want to build the technology to solve this problem. And you guys have done it, but you still have two major other mountains to figure out now. You've got okay, how do we get the car dealers to actually want to use this and mm-hmm. actually do this, and then how do we get consumers to actually do this and want to do this, right? Because those are equally as hard of problems because I don't think a lot of consumers trust this, right? A lot of consumers don't trust car dealers to begin with, right? So you guys create a great tool that helps like with that transparency and should help create that trust. But you're still fighting against, I think, consumers that just don't trust car dealers. Well, you know, for our um, kind of our mentality going into it was that the UI would really help kind of drive that process. And Creating yeah. a process that was on site to the dealership would help as well. You know, really one of our goals was to always make our processes white labeled to the dealership as possible so that customers who trusted the dealership and the dealership is, of course, spending a lot of money in marketing. They're spending a lot of time to build that trust with their consumer base. We wanted to be able to just kind of be a natural progression in that process where the customer could click on a button that's on the dealership website and they would begin the process on the dealership website. We're not taking them anywhere else. And so that trust then kind of slides into our process. And as far as uh, as far as 
when they've actually begun the process, we could kind of ease them into it. You know, most customers would be going into it with the idea that they want to figure out how much this car is actually going to cost them on a regular basis. And so generally we would lead up with our estimator tool, which allows them to get in there and play with things before they have to make any kind of commitment. And then each step through each one of our modules then just kind of builds on that and builds on that to the point where you get to a finance form where, you know, at this point there's enough sunk cost in their time that they've spent going through the process to where they're like, okay, you know what? I feel comfortable with this price, everything that I'm seeing here. I'm comfortable enough to be able to submit this over to the dealership now. Now, I mean, of well, course, in our funnel, we have a lot of people drop off during that process, but it's maybe yeah. not as many as you would think. Well, I have to imagine most consumers, if they've never done this before, it's, it's you know, trying to get them to do this and believe in this. But I would imagine most consumers are going to believe your software and the website than they are whatever they're being told by the card, you know, the salesperson <laughs> in the finance office at the dealership, who they probably all feel like is kind of slimy, right? Like mm -hmm. that's just the general perception of 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 car dealers and dealing with car dealers, right? And the if anything, I think this creates a, a different sense of transparency and trust and takes away the the weird human element that has kind of always been the negative. So so to your point, then what do you, for the dealers that are using this, are they seeing that adoption? Like, you know, percentage of cars that actually get sold like through this process? Like how is that adoption going? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that again, our software kind of appeals to a different demographic in your customer base, right? Okay. Um, you're always going to have customers who want to go into the dealership. They want to touch the car. They want to walk around the car. I totally get that. I'm a big car person. So I love seeing cars. I like going yeah. on test drives and enjoying all that. What I don't really like is the the human interaction in that process. Um, as you were mentioning, I, I have a tendency to perf or, uh, believe uh, more readily what the computer is telling me. And so yeah. that's where, you know, I would go into the process kind of even, even if I'm getting more screwed, even if I'm getting more screwed by the computer than the salesperson, the computer is more believable. But I, yeah, exactly. Right. I, you know, I'm seeing that whole process. I mean, it, it sounds a little bit silly, right? But you know, I, I recently went in and purchased a new vehicle for my wife and my first time sitting in the dealership was kind of like that. Like I, I felt like I was being taken advantage of by the, by the salesperson I was working with. And then I ended up going back to the same vehicle again after walking out of the, the showroom because I was tired of dealing with the guy. And I went back through uh, their online process and it felt that much more comfortable to me. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, that's our expectation for WebBuy is that you as a customer can go through that process, come out of it with some level of comfort and then be able to walk into the showroom if you're picking your car up and not or spend a minimal amount of time in there. And, you know, that's something that we saw really quick was that you'd go from spending, you know, three, four hours in a showroom, which is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Maybe, maybe it's ridiculous. optimistic in some cases, um, it's ridiculous, but, but down to like half an hour, because at that point yeah. it's like, you know, you've gone through your, uh, you've gone through the whole process. You've gone through the F and I side of things, which a lot of the times another hour sunk at the dealership. Um, yeah. and at that point you're just signing any paperwork that's outstanding and you're collecting your keys and you're walking out of the dealership. You know, that's, that's been our hope for this process. Well, I love what you guys are doing. I think it's interesting. You also talk about only a certain demographic is going to use it. Like, so even though you build like this world's coolest software, mm -hmm. not everybody's going to use it. And then there's another big challenge when you build a software, you build a product like this is, okay, now the dealership's using it. Does a dealership actually make more or less money if they sell a car this way? Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's the other danger is like, 
you go pitch this to the dealers, they start using and they're like, well, now I make $500 less profit on every one of these things, even though it's the world's best technology, I'm not going to use it. Right? Like, so how do you, how do you guys deal with that part of it? So, um, I, I think one of the, as far as um, making more or less from a dealership perspective, I don't have numbers in front of me at the moment okay. on that one. But um, what I can say is that from a from a revenue standpoint, we are a lot more consistent than we would if you were going through an individual. So I think that's one of our uh, the appeal that we have to the dealership as well is that you know the dealership can sort of count on what we can provide to them from a revenue standpoint on a monthly basis because we're taking the rules that we've agreed on between them and us. And we're consistent on them every single time. And so if they're like, you know what, we're getting 10, 20, 30 deals through web buy every month, like this is the revenue that we're making. We know that we're going to make that. We know that we didn't have to sink a bunch of our time into the haggling process with the customer. And we end up ultimately with a customer who fits into this yeah. demographic of an online buyer who ends up a lot happier as a result of it. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it just kind of comes down to the, the kind of uh, customers who are going through that process. And again, we're trying to appeal to those people. Yeah, but you, you see the point, right? Like the problem is with, with some technology, not necessarily this, but like you build a technology and then you implement it and you're like, oh, now we actually make less money. So yeah. we're going to go back to doing it the weird manual way before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I totally understand that. And of course, it's very variable between different dealerships, especially in, yeah. in terms of how they implement our processes on their site. Because our, our system is incredibly dependent on them agreeing and working with us and doing a good job when implementing it on their websites, Right. Because that's entirely where we live. Um, and so, so we do see a lot of fluctuation there. Um, but to my knowledge, we're not losing people money on that either. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be even better, right? If all of a sudden they got more gross gross margin out of it, that would be the holy grail. Exactly. The, well, we're also about the cheapest salesperson you'd ever be able to employ. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is true too, right? Like you're saving money on commissions or, or paying F&I and everything else too. Mm -hmm. So it took you guys like you say about seven years to almost perfect this. I've been full-time on the project for seven years. I've been involved for 10 and we're in our third iteration of it now. Yes. So it was easy. Easy. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, our first iteration, our beta, you know, we learned a lot about, um, you know, not only sort of what was expected of a DR process. Cause when we started, DR was not a thing yet. I mean, again, our that's digital here. retelling, right? Digital yes, retelling. Digital retelling. You bet. Yeah. Um, our, our founder had just seen Amazon boxes showing up at his door and was like, I wonder if I can replicate this, uh, at my dealership. Um, and at the time, you know, there wasn't, uh, any of these like large competitors in the space. There weren't any roadsters out there. There wasn't the, uh, Carvana out there or anything like that. Um, you know, the space was reasonably clear and, uh, but there were no expectations around it. We didn't know if this was something viably that dealerships would be interested in. And, you know, that's definitely uh, back in 2020, it was proven to be something that dealerships were interested in and customers were definitely interested in engaging with. Um, and so, you know, we had gone into our MVP making a lot of assumptions about things and about how, how things should work. And I mean, it's interesting to me, though, looking back at the way that we had set stuff up originally, a lot of those assumptions ended up being correct because we were just looking at it from a humanistic standpoint. We're like, what does the dealership do right now? And what is my expectation as a customer? Um, and so while we've made a lot of changes and we've made a lot of improvements, especially on the uh, integration and the scalability side of things, a lot of those core tenants continue to remain the same. Well, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode is brought to you by FullScale. If you need to hire software developers, grow your team, you can check us out at FullScale.io. We help all sorts of startups, scale-ups, build all sorts of 
technology products. So how how hard was it to build this product? Obviously, you were the CTO. Mm-hmm. Did it take a mountain of developers to to build this thing? Like it it sounds so complicated to me, and, and partly because I worked in this, all the different integrations, all the different things. It took a lot of years mm-hmm. to perfect. Did it also take a mountain of developers? No, um, you know it's. Uh, I always find it's a. There's a definite balance between the number of developers that you employ in a project and sort of the the quality of work output that you're going to get. So generally, we've we've staffed about um, seven to eight developers in any given time. Um, as I mentioned, we, we bring people in on a junior level um, and then kind of let them grow in the space. But we also yeah. consistently have about four or so, four to five senior developers as well. Um, it, so we're a very tight-knit team. Um, and that's worked really well for me in the past because I, I have been admittedly one of those developers. I've been um, developing on the project just about every day uh, up until the end of this year um, and or this past year, rather, excuse me. Um, and for us, a lot of it came down to, uh, again, having really clear expectations on scope and being very, very careful about managing our scope creep on things, especially on a project like a digital retailing platform. It's incredibly tempting to let the scope creep kind of take over and kind of follow the shiny stuff in every which direction. Um, but again, our goals for our, our core offerings have remained the same throughout and so that's been really our focal point is getting as good as we possibly could in those core tenants and then starting to add these additional uh, features kind of in and above. And so because of that, we were, we were able to maintain a much smaller team uh, than I think you would expect to see on something like a digital retailing platform. Now, can you throw more developers at something and potentially speed things up? You can, but you have to have a really, really solid uh, managerial team to do something like that because developers alone are not going to necessarily accelerate the rate at which you develop, which sounds a little counterproductive there, but without guidance, you're just not going to get where you want to be. Well, and I always liken it to doing brain surgery, right? Like you can't have 10 people doing brain surgery at one time. You want the best surgeon you can find and you want everybody else to get the heck out of the way. Exactly. And so when it, when it comes to software, it's, it's best if you have multiple teams, it's better. Like you'd rather have two or three teams than have one giant team. So you can figure out how to split up the work and, and, and people have ownership of specific, you know, parts of the platform um, is always a struggle. You know, what, what's interesting about what you guys are doing is back in my Vint Solutions days, so back to 2010 to, to 11, you know, before I left there, there were companies trying to do what, what you guys are doing today that ultimately failed. Mm-hmm. And... In some sense, I think it was because they were too early. I think they were too early trying to do this. And I think as technology continues to change and online shopping and e-commerce has dramatically changed over the last 10 or 15 years, right? Yeah. Like Amazon and all the stuff you're talking about. And then COVID happened and people got did a lot more of buying online and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And to some degree, it feels like there's always a... a Timing is always critical to a lot of businesses, right? And the question is trying to figure out for WebBuy is like, are you guys at the right time now where other people before weren't at the right time? And is the market ready for this? Like that's the other thing that is still kind of TBD, right? Is trying to figure out, okay, is everybody ready to do this yeah. and to make this the standard and is this going to blow up? Yeah. Um, 
as as mentioned, when we started the process, we didn't we didn't know if there was really a market for digital retailing at the time. Um, when COVID happened, um, it it actually worked out pretty well for us. We went we we increased the number of accounts that we had on board by over two hundred percent over the course of like eight months. It was it was yeah. crazy during that period of time. You know, uh, working out of the house and just uh, you know putting in the 12, 16 hour days to just make sure that the software was performing the way that it needed to, to bring these new people on and, and be able to facilitate those onboarding processes was an incredibly huge t- challenge. Um, and then even afterwards, as, uh, as accounts began to decline, you know, uh, some people like fell off and there ended up being uh, pressure from the manufacturers to use specific, um, specific softwares. We saw a bit of a decline, but never to the extent that it was previously. Our accounts never dipped down that low again. Um, and then from there, it's just continued to grow up. And so from a kind of a market adoption standpoint, I do think we're at a place right now where the dealerships are seeing the advantages of digital retailing um, and are ready to adopt that sort of thing. I mean, early on, it was it was difficult to explain what the integration process looked like to a dealership and have them be like, yeah, I'm, I'm in for yeah. this. I'm willing to put the legwork in. But now there's an expectation around there. And I mean, you coming from Vin Solutions, it's a lot of work to be able to put a put an entire uh, CRM system into a dealership. And the same thing applies for digital retailing because we need to know everything about how that yeah. dealership is pricing their vehicles and how their process works. And unless they are bought into that process, unless they know why to be bought in and they're being pulled to buy in from people who are their peers in the industry, you're just not going to get that kind of patience out of them. But now we're seeing a change there. We've made our system simple enough to integrate at this point and they are bought in enough that you know we can... Uh, you know, again, we're seeing more adoption than we did before, and we're able to get through those integrations so much faster than we were before, even a couple of years ago. Well, and that's why I mentioned timing, right? Is so often in business, timing is a big factor. Like for Vin Solutions, time we were timing helped us a lot. Like 2008, 2009, GM goes bankrupt, Chrysler goes bankrupt, Ford closes a lot of stores, but we were in the right place at the right time because that's also when. Um, a lot of digital marketing, digital advertising, you know, putting cars on AutoTrader and Cars.com, eBay, all this stuff took off. So we were at the right place at the right time when when that inflection point hit. And you know, I'm rooting for you guys that hopefully digital retailing is going to hit that inflection point, right? So, you know, hopefully if you guys are one of the leaders when when that really takes off, you know, really really rooting for you guys. Well, appreciate that. Um, I mean, we're a survivor if nothing else at this point, right? Because <laughs> you know, yeah. we. Uh, around 2020, I think you could probably have counted 20, 25, maybe 30 digital retailing-esque sort of platforms at the time. Oh, and now wow. we're really down to about five of them who are clearly defined as digital retailing platforms. There's there's a lot of companies with a bit of a digital retailing component in them. But the problem with digital retailing is that unless you're fully like diving in headfirst on it, you're not going to be able to hit all of the milestones that are required by the dealership from a performance uh, capability standpoint. So. Yeah, we're a little yeah, and less some of them, And some of the manufacturers, if they tried to build this themselves. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. that didn't go that didn't go very well, did it? I mean, uh, we've seen that historically though in software with dealerships, right? I mean, think about like the the website stuff when when it came down to uh to dealer choice versus an OEM mandate, right? Dealerships have a tendency to want to use what they want to use. And there have been a lot of uh, manufacturers that have kind of held out on that. I mean, the first one to come to mind is Subaru. They used dealer.com websites for the longest period of time there and then ultimately ended up going to dealer choice. I mean, 
it's it's ultimately what the dealerships want. And that's what we've seen in digital retailing too, is that there was a very strong OEM mandate coming out of 2020. And now that's loosened up quite a bit because again, the dealerships have their preferences and um, you know eventually the pressure gets to the, the manufacturer enough that uh, it seems like they kind of give in. <laughs> well, that kind of brings up an interesting topic um, that people might 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 be interested in. And in automotive, you've got the manufacturers, you got Ford and Chevy and Toyota and Honda and all of them. And to some degree, they're trying to mandate different things on the dealerships, which are their own franchises. But then the franchises want to go pick best of breed. They're like, hey, if WebBuy has the best best solution, we want to use best, you know, web buy. Mm -hmm. But then you've potentially got the manufacturer that's trying to shove something down their throat just because they got some sweetheart deal for it. Or they tried to build it themselves. And let's be honest, uh most manufacturers don't even build cars. They just assemble them. Like they don't even build any of the parts anymore. Right. They buy all the parts and just assemble the car. Like they don't even invent like anything about the car either. They just assemble it from all sorts of other different manufacturers of the of the components. And, you know, it makes may more sense to have somebody like WebBuy and other vendors that are like, hey, we're going to go innovate and go build the world's best whatever. Mm-hmm. And then that's why the dealer's like, well, they want choice. They want choice instead of getting something shoved down their throat from the manufacturer. Right. And I mean, I think they're from a dealership perspective, too, um, with with the... Man, or the OEM mandating software that really gives the OEM control over what that sales pipeline looks like for the dealership yeah. and dealerships don't want that. I mean, they've proven that over and over again. I mean, um, them being able to control those processes and again, make the DR process look exactly like it would look in the, in the showroom um, is incredibly important to the dealerships. And I feel like for the most part, they don't like that, uh, that sort of big brother looking over their shoulder. Well, so I want to switch gears. I want to talk about your new company called Pauldron. Yes. And your so you weren't one of the founders of WebBuy, right? But you're one of the founders of Pauldron. Correct. Yes. Um, I was uh, I was one of the very first on the WebBuy project, but I was not. I'm not actually a founder over there. But yes, I am a okay. co-founder in Pauldron. So what's it like to be CTO and co-founder versus being CTO before? I'm curious how that changes your viewpoint on things. Yeah, um, so I've been a, I've been a founder before, um, so this is not new to me. Um, with uh, with originally uh, merging my old company WebGrain with WebBuy, um, you know I, I assumed the role of CTO and Web, WebBuy when I did that. Um, and for me, it was a good opportunity for me to really be able to focus specifically on the technical challenges that surrounded the company, um, which was exactly what the company needed at the time because. Uh, it's a DR digital retailing is a big enough challenge that you really need to kind of put all your brain power into it. Now, moving into Pauldron at this point, um, I wanted to be able to take a little bit more ownership of that process. Um, and going into it again, being a founder pre- in previous ventures as well, I kind of knew what would what would happen there. And again, this is a this is a uh, we're starting as a small project here. I've got uh, two other yeah. co-founders that I'm working with, and so you know from a from a managerial standpoint, it's a lot easier than like the development companies that I've run previously. Um, but it's it's great for me because it does allow me a lot more flexibility to take the company in the direction that I want to take it from not only the technology standpoint, but then also from a business development standpoint. Um, and it's exciting because again, it's it's a it's a new project for us. Um, we've uh, we've really been uh, fully incorporated at starting at the beginning of this year. Um, 
And uh, it's a pro- it's a an opportunity for us now to look at a problem that we saw in again kind of that digital retailing space and be able to really own a solution to that problem. Um, whereas again, web buy is more kind of this blanket solution for digital retailing as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm kind of curious is you know now going to be founder and CTO if it has kind of changed your viewpoint on things. You know, instead of just being the CTO before, I mean, granted it was a strategic position. You know, the other ownership group trusted you to make the right decisions, do the right stuff. But now that you're one of the key owners and the CTO, does it change your perspective a little bit than just being CTO before? I think for me, and I I don't want this to sound like I, you know, I wasn't motivated before, but it definitely like lights a fire under me um, being both the founder and the CTO. It feels like and being early in the process here, it feels like you're fighting for your life, right? You've got to be the absolute best that you can be. If you see any issues anywhere, those issues need to be solved as quickly as possible. Um, because we are uh, building from the ground up here, um, our goal is to address any kind of issues in the space as quickly as we possibly can and do it as well as we possibly can. And so um, there's uh, in, in working with a very small group of people, it, I find it's easier for me to... Um, identify those things more quickly and be able to take action on them. Whereas uh, with a larger team, like over at WebBuy, you have a responsibility to follow a very clearly defined set of uh, scope surrounding the product, um, surrounding the design requirements, uh, surrounding all the legal requirements that go into that. Um, And so I I don't mean to go kind of towards the fast and loose angle from a startup standpoint here, but again, we are trying to uh, address a problem as well as we possibly can. And we're highly motivated because again, it's just the first Yeah. Well, so tell us a little more about what Pauldron does. We haven't covered that. Yeah. So Pauldron is a vehicle service contract follow-up system, an automated system based on um, our experience within the F&I industry and also uh, uh, AI that we've built out to help facilitate the process. Uh, from a, a dealership perspective and from a, both from a franchise and an independent perspective, one of the processes that we find falls short consistently across the board is the follow-up in F&I. So what I mean by that is um, when you're talking about vehicle service coverage, for example, after you purchase your vehicle, generally you will sit down with an F&I guy at the dealership and they'll run through the options with you as to what, uh, you know, what recommendations they have for uh, vehicle service contract products and ancillary products. Um, but that's a lot of the time, the last that you will hear of this. <laughs> and if your vehicle has yeah. a factory warranty on it, you might never hear about it. And so what we want to be able to do is say, dealership, we're going to take this completely off your plate. All you've got to do is share with us some of the data as per the customers going in who might be interested in follow-up service contracts. And we are going to help facilitate that entirely for you. Um, really at the end of the day, uh, we will own the entire pipeline and we'll make it really easy to make sure that uh, we're following up consistently with everybody that we need to be following up with. So again, really helping kind of shore up that process and make it as automated as we can uh, for the dealership. And I, I should mention, just, this is not exclusive to dealerships. This would also work for agencies as well. So are you writing all the code so far? I'm writing all the code so far. Yes, I'm, I'm very much a working <laughs> CTO for sure, uh, which right. is where I want to be, to be honest with you. I enjoy writing code. I've been writing code since I was eight years old and interested in robotics. And my goal with my career is to always be building new and interesting stuff. And nowadays with 
uh, AI becoming what it's becoming, this is an awesome opportunity for me to be able to build yeah. something that not only addresses a problem, but also scratches that itch for me as being able to really kind of uh, envelop myself in the new technology that's coming out. So I'm extremely excited about this. So tell me a little bit about how you're using AI. Are you using OpenAI and you're feeding it a bunch of messages, like emails from customer and then asking it like, what did the customer want? And you have like a decision tree to figure out how to respond. Like how, how are you using AI? So I'm using it in a lot of different ways um, to kind of brush on the surface here. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a, uh, one of the ways that I'm using it. So as a customer, let's say you uh, had a vehicle service contract previously, right? Um, now I can take a look at that vehicle service contract and I might not have an apples to apples like replacement for you, for example. But what I can do is I can look at the entire scope of that warranty that you had previously. And I can look at this entire menu of products that I've got right now, and I can make some really, um, some really good recommendations to you. And those recommendations can be based on, again, the scope of the warranty as well as like demographic information, like geography, for example, um, and about like uh, information re regarding your car and uh, what that car may need. I mean, if you're dealing with a Stellantis product, for example, you might have uh, challenges that you wouldn't have if you owned a Volkswagen. And so we want to be able to make really informed recommendations to the customer and be able to get it right in front of them as quickly as possible. And so, I mean, that's one of the ways that we're using it. But I use uh, AI in a lot of different ways as far as like matching mm -hmm. data and being able to gather data and, uh, and again, making, making good informed decisions as to what to show to people. So we talked about earlier with WebBuy, like building the product was extremely complicated, but figuring out how to sell it is its own complicated piece. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious for your new venture here, have you figured out the go-to-market strategy and how you're going to sell this? Um, yeah, we've got a really good idea about that. So um, we have uh, a lot of uh, very exciting partnerships that we've been pulling together. And we're going to be okay. working with a lot of the uh, or the companies that are originating a lot of the uh, fact or coverage that we'd be talking about here. So they've already okay. built out a lot of their um, they've already built out a lot of those relationships. And in us having a relationship with them to sell their products, that gives us a, a really good in to be able to um, uh, again, put it in front of the people it needs to be yeah. seen by. So for you, the, the key to go to market strategy is partnerships. Exactly. Yep. And what, what's it so interesting, a reason I highlight this is every business is totally different. Like the guy I had on the podcast yesterday, um, his whole business model was going to trade shows. I got all his business by going to trade shows. You know, it's just, it's all just so dramatically different. And, uh, you know, at, at full scale, we get a lot of our customers from people who listen to this podcast. Yeah, we get a lot of people who follow me on LinkedIn and read my blog. So follow me, Matt Watson on LinkedIn, and I have a blog at uh, visionaryCTO.com. And you know, my thought leadership drives a lot of our our customers. And so I just highlight it's like every business is so so different. And one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur is figuring out what go to market strategy works because just because you you know, did some go-to-market strategy before in a previous company, it may be the absolute wrong one for whatever the new company is. Well, and so this is where I'm incredibly fortunate to have the the partners in this venture that I that I have. Um, you know, I have started companies as a solo founder before. I've been responsible not only for the code side of things, but also for the sales side of things. I am not a great salesperson, Matt. I, I'm very passionate about the development work that I do. Uh, very excited about the technology side, which some could argue could be a good sales technique in and of itself. 
but I'm not necessarily the guy who's out there doing the networking that needs to happen. My partner, Matt, is, uh, has been amazing on that front. He's got so many relationships that, that we've been able to, uh, to take advantage of in this process. And so it's incredibly important if you're a founder to have uh, other great founders that you're able to start with who can each fit that individual niche. Um, and between myself, uh, Matt, and my other partner, Mike, we all fit very, very specific parts of our niche within the company. And I think that's why uh, we'll see success with this project is that, again, we all have very clear kind of boundaries of delineation in the work that we're doing. Um, and we also have very deep uh, knowledge surrounding each kind of part of that delineation. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, again, this was Steve DeMock. You can check him out. at. Um, give us your, what is your website address again? Pauldron.net. Pauldron.net, and there'll be a link in the in the show notes for that. And then WebBuy, we talked about is WebBuy.com. Correct. Um, yep. And you can check, also find me on uh, LinkedIn, Steve Dimock. Okay. All right. We'll try to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, excited for your new venture and to follow and, and see how it goes. So, so good luck and congratulations. Thank you so much, Matt. Again, appreciate you letting me be on the show. And uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you more about this in the future. All right. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.